Welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode 16. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dave Devine, Formula One engineer and also historic racing driver. In this special two-part episode, we go into not only how he got into Formula One, but also how he's been able to use his club racing experience to help navigate that journey. If you've ever wondered whether there's anything as a club racer you could learn from professional motorsports, I'm sure you'll find this show absolutely fascinating. So if you're interested in working in the industry, we're just curious about how you can make improvements to your own car and improve your own racing experience and understand what it takes to get much closer to the front and sit back and enjoy part one. So welcome, Dave. Hello, Samir. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm, I'm super excited about this conversation and how it's going to go. I'm sure people will be absolutely fascinated by your story and also your day job. So the idea really is just to get some background on you and what you've been up to. And also, if we can think about you're working in Formula One, but you also race at a club level. So the idea really is to help people listening to this show to say, what can we learn that we can actually apply in our own racing as well? That sounds good. Thank you for having me on. And as you say, hopefully, if there's anything people can can learn from my experiences and background, then, then, then all the better. So tell us a bit about you. How did you get into racing? What did you do for a day job? So I was very fortunate uh, growing up with a father who in, enjoyed racing. And so I was almost, as soon as I could stand up, I was holding a spanner and um, helping out in the garage. The the passion and the desire and enjoyment of motor racing all started for me there, really. When I was around about the age, about 10, I think, my, my father had quite a big accident of his own and um, hurt his back and, and decided that he, he was going to stop racing himself and decided to, to let me have a go. And so um, we went and had a look at all kinds of different formulas. We, we looked at even sort of motocross, karting, but then ended up going short oval stock car racing effectively. So, sorry to jump in, but what is short oval racing just for the benefit of people who may or may not be aware of that form of motorsport? The formula I ran in to start with as a junior was called mini stocks. And you basically take a, a mini and it's a sort of roll cage, but then reinforcement around the outside to keep the people or the children safe in there. And it's formula for 10 to 16 year olds. So you can imagine as a 10 year old, when you first go out, it's quite a daunting situation. You could have up to, we had, I think, over 30 cars on occasion on a quarter mile oval. And wow. just, just to spice up the action, as you get better, you have to start further back. So you have to overtake. You know, so you're going to get a lot of racing experience in a short period of time. And the idea that if you're the best of it, you start at the back, mate. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And I know we certainly had one year where the, the champion, he didn't win a single race all year. And it's just about consistency. You just need to be there all the time. And again, it's great because you, you can develop a car and make it fast. But if it's fragile, you won't win the championship. If it's not quick to work on, you won't win the championship. And it's, again, I, I think it's frowned upon by quite a few people. But the only thing I would say is that recently, which, is, which has helped a lot, I would say, is Nick Tandy, um, who I raced against him and his brother, Joe Tandy. 
but Nick went on to win Le Mans with Porsche um, in, in LMP1. I think that was obviously a, would tell people that it can't be all bad and it's got to be a fairly good training ground if someone can go from there all the way to Le Mans and win. And I think he's, he's, he's very well respected indeed. So Nick Tanner's done really well, hasn't he? And one of the things that you and I have always talked about when we've talked about this type of racing is the racecraft it teaches you. And one of the things that a lot of people focus on when they're getting into circuit racing, for example, or even karting, isn't about that. The focus seems to be primarily on how can we drive the car faster, almost in a bubble on your own. And there's so much attention on how you can drive the car, how you get onto the pace. But what I love about this form of motorsport is that, yes, that is important, but the actual track is quite simple. And really, it's much more about racecraft. And ironically, when you get up to speed on a circuit, you're in a race, and that really defines whether you win or lose your racecraft, not necessarily your pure speed. Absolutely. If you start at the back of 30 cars and you need to overtake them all in 30 laps sort of thing, racecraft really is key. And almost, I'd say, one of the biggest things I gained from oval racing was the art of driving defensively is to one extent, but actually just not putting your car into a vulnerable position so that if you were to make contact with somebody, then you hopefully will stay pointing in the right direction. So, for example, if was going to try and make a move, trying to overtake around the outside of a car, for example, is making sure that when you overlap, you don't leave the last corner of your car overlapping with the car on the inside of you. Because if that car on the inside were to slide out by accident or intentionally, then they may push you into a spin. Whereas if you can make sure that if that car is to hit you, it's going to hit you in the side into the driver's door, for example, then they're only going to push you sideways, uh, push you across the track rather than start to rotate your car. So there's various features like that. And I say I learned um, very quickly because I was fortunate I had a, a fairly competitive car right from the word go. And I remember overtaking someone and, and just blasted past in a straight line. And then uh, they just tagged the back of the car as I came past and, and off I went into the Armco quite quite quickly. So you learn very quickly how to look after yourself, make sure that you're not putting yourself into a vulnerable position all the time, even when you are overtaking people. So um, you're always looking to, I say, you could even be going down the straight, you, you pull up alongside someone and then you actually take your foot off the throttle just to keep yourself level with them so that when you arrive at the corner, there's no way that they can, whatever they do, it's not going to affect you coming going into the corner or coming out sort of thing. So as I say, there's uh, lots and lots you can learn and obviously very crowded all the time. So again, you go from a, a circuit like that onto a larger circuit like Silverstone, all of a sudden it seems it's a big empty space and you feel <laughs> like you've got a lot of track to play with. Obviously, the, the mini stock preparation translated very well. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And again, my father and I had a very good relationship and we'd look always to trying to improve the car. So every race we went to, I think we had something new on there to try. We were always looking to develop the car and, and, and we managed to certainly get a car that was very comfortable to drive. I absolutely, it's probably the most fun car I've driven. It was a, as a cooler pro comp LA gold. And I know through fast corners like Gerrard's at Mallory Park, I could literally just go around the whole corner using the throttle to steer the car around the corner. I didn't even touch the steering. 
it was so well balanced and it was it was the most fun car i think i've driven very lightweight and 160 horsepower or something like that but absolutely great fun and and then yes i say after the first year a bit of a toe in the water was i going to like circuit racing was i going to be any good at it and when we then had a newer car and all of a sudden we were winning races kind of a sign that yes yeah we were enjoying it and and we could do fairly well so so you, you're doing really well you're winning races that must have put a few noses out of joint i imagine but so where did but where did you carried on from there i think a little bit yes yes and uh, we again looking for to see where we could get to we've always looked at what's the highest level we can compete at for for, for the budget that we had and uh, we ended up Janetta had a single make G20 championship and it was on the support bill for the British GT and F3, which at the time was quite a big package really because they had Bruno Senna and Nelson Piquet Jr. and people like that were in the F3. So there was quite a lot of buzz around the paddock and the G20 championship was, I say, single make, fairly low cost for, for, for the level of racing. And so it meant uh, there were big grids again in there of 45 odd cars type thing so qualifying heats to get through to final and things like that and um we absolutely loved loved that time because we were all of a sudden we were still just a van and a trailer and we were up against people with you know big lorries big teams running lots of cars and things like that and quite quickly i think we managed to win a race i think within the first few meetings and um just loved, absolutely loved the, the time in that because it was all about slipstreaming and things. So you, you, you very rarely could get away at the front. It was always down to the last lap to, to, to decide who was going to win. And yes, we then ended up doing that for three years. The second year got cut short because I ran into a pheasant whilst fighting for the lead. And uh, yes, again, we was at Thruxton slipstreaming like mad and uh, was tucked up behind the guy who was leading and, and he darted out to the way of a pheasant crossing the road and and i hit it absolutely square on and uh, it split the radiator and blew up the engine unfortunately oh. yeah that was a bit of a shame but so we had to sit out that year and then we're back in again and for the last year we ended up finishing second in the championship again it went down to the last race and uh, we very narrowly missed out i think it was a couple of places um on the championship which was a bit gutting at the time because there was an opportunity to have a test drive in the panels GT3 car, and with the idea Probably that maybe, a blessing in disguise in retrospect, yes, <laughs> that's well, a weird car. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yes. But obviously, the idea of it was amazing, and it was was possibly open the door to GT racing. So we pushed to try and win that prize. But unfortunately, we we narrowly missed out. But but with hindsight, it's not the end of the world. It, it, basically, at that point, we then had to stop racing because my father quite rightly so decided that he probably spent a bit too much uh, going motor racing and and we'd, we'd given it our best go to get to sort of gt racing and i've got made a couple of offers to go and race in gts but again they all needed budget as always we we called it a day there but i think we had a, we had a fairly good crack at it all to try and get into gt racing effectively tell us a little bit about your the work side of things because you, you work at a formula one team but how did you get there i'm guessing that this this passion of motorsport that you've experienced as you're growing up has translated to what am i going to do for a job oh there's professional teams out there that pay money to employ engineers so what do you do and how did you get to that point currently i work at uh, racing point formula one team soon to be rebranded aston martin so it's a bit 
bit of a flashier name, but basically I'm responsible for the front suspension on the car. And to get to where I did, I went to university at Loughborough, mechanical engineering. And from there, when I finished, I, I well, struggled to get a job into motorsport initially and ended up taking up a an unpaid placement at RML, which was a six-week unpaid placement because I feel very fortunate that even from a very young age, I decided that, yes, motor racing is what I love. And if I can work in that industry that I love, then hopefully I'll enjoy going to work. And so right from the word go, I've had a goal of where I wanted to go. So it's made decisions on which A-levels to take and which degree to take and things like that. It's very easy because I've just got a target I'm aiming for. And then when I finished university, I couldn't get a job. I thought, ah, what am I going to do now? But I knew that if I could just get my foot in the door somewhere, that that hopefully I could show that I was enthusiastic and I wasn't too stupid. And and fortunately, I did. I, I took up this six-week placement with RML, and then they were happy and quite liked me, and so they just gradually extended my contract. So I ended up getting a full-time job at RML, working on the mainly on the touring car project there, but also the sports cars, and they also did a McLaren Mercedes SLR and various other projects. It was, it was, a, it was a great company to work at for various projects. There's a question that I, I, I sometimes get asked by people about getting into motorsport as a job, and the question really is about the education. And so you said, oh, you've done a degree. But my feeling is, and I don't know if you, how you feel about this, that the fact that you were racing as a hobby has given you a more rounded package and a more practical package and a more valuable offering for the race team, particularly at a touring car team, you might say. But that experience of, of just being in the world of motorsport must, I think that's really valuable extra piece of information or extra piece of experience that you, that would really help you get a job in addition to your formal qualifications. What do you, what do you think about that? Slightly mixed, if, if I'm completely honest. I basically, whilst at university, I managed to get a couple of two-week placements at what was then BAR. And I was surprised at that point how uninterested they were at my experience of actual racing. And it put me off Formula One initially because they, there was, it was almost this, they didn't want to look outside of the world of Formula One for any kind of knowledge or didn't overly value the experience um, of that. Initially, whilst I was at university, it did make me then question whether Motors, well, working in the world of motorsport was for me, but I'm glad I persevered because certainly when I went to RML, it, it definitely helped. As soon as I was there and they asked me to design parts and instantly I was looking at how easy it was to assemble, how easy it was to make and the importance of the part. It Was it going to make the car faster? If yes, right, let's, let's put a lot of effort into this. Was it a case of it's a simple bracket that doesn't really matter. Okay, we're not too worried about this. So that all of a sudden gave me more confidence that this is what I want to do. And then since moving on to Racing Point, Force India, I should say, then Racing Point, again, I feel that I want to say more enthusiasts of motor racing in general, effectively, not just Formula One. They're quite happy to look outside. And we often talk about motorbikes and touring cars and gts and things like this so yes at that point and all of a sudden i would say it does help it does help 
I say I did that blip there at university. I thought, oh, hang on a minute, maybe this isn't going to to be of use. But certainly now, uh, when I work with mechanics and and show them things I'm designing and 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 propose solutions to problems that we've got, they are generally appreciative of my approach because I have been there. I have been in a paddock putting things together at midnight or I've been out in the yeah, workshop during exactly. the week sort of thing. So an appreciation of not just what makes a car go fast or how a race meeting is run, but just assembling a part and things like that. So I would say the experience certainly does help and, and does look good on your CV. And even Formula student now um, at Formula One team, they do look at Formula students as well as another area. So even if you arrive at university and you haven't had any experience and you'll find it difficult to, to get out, to club races to get experience, then Formula Student is, a, is another place where actually the standard within Formula Student is, is very good. And so that also gets looked at. So yes, I would say that, that any experience you can get is a bonus on the CV for sure. So tell us a bit about touring car races. So what goes into a touring car and what were you doing for those teams? And maybe what can we learn from what they were doing that maybe we could apply in our own racing? So when I first started, I, I was the with the Chevrolet Lassetti touring car, which was a, a car which uh, outperformed its its credentials, if you like. Um, we managed to turn that around <laughs> and get some pace out of it very well. And then I ended up taking uh, the responsibility for the chassis and all the suspension mounts on the Chevrolet Cruze. So this is all Super 2000 era. And then when it, the regulations went to TC1, I then uh, moved out to the engine department to design the basically all the inlet and cylinder head, which, again, I had zero experience of designing engines. So I was very grateful for that opportunity. But as for what I learned from there and what can be applied, the I would say almost one of the biggest things that we would focus on was curbing for, for street circuits, especially because touring cars touring cars especially they visit a few street circuits you end up getting these sort of man-made chicanes and things like this and the curves were just horrendous and so we got to the point of developing with our damper supplier of how to be able to strike these curves and keep the car well get the car back onto the ground as quickly as possible and if you could do that all of a sudden you're finding sort of half second chunks it's, it's not the hundreds or the tenths you, you're up to sort of half a second if, if all of a sudden you can straight line this chicane without firing yourself off into a wall afterwards the, the time we found there was 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 huge so we did a lot of lot of development with our damper supplier got to the point where the damper supplier said look this is as far as we can go so we ended up bringing the dampers in-house and, and we carried on and developed those even further so you made um, your own dampers yes yep 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 so we, we did all of our own dampers and they were quite involved by the end of it, I would say. But again, it was an area of performance where we just recognised that it's somewhere where we really could make a difference. And it, it, the curbing performance of the Chevrolet Cruze was, I'd say, probably what what won it the championship. It it just could sail over curbs, and the drivers could just attack everything basically. And they really, when you get to all the street circuits, it was competitive at. And I say the touring cars. There were so many street circuits that if you're competitive on those, you, you've got a good chance in the championship, basically. So that was the most effort we put into were the dampers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you're learning all the time because dampers are quite a sophisticated, complicated, confusing bit of equipment, I think, for many people. 
did you have much experience with dampers before and, and what kind of stuff did you learn from that you now that you now can apply or at least think about when you're thinking about dampers so damping for me was relatively limited before rml and i must admit i wasn't solely responsible for the dampers at the time so i, I i've only gleaned what i could from the project but the actual characteristic of damping was certainly important but but touching on there i was just suggesting that the curbing performance so we're looking at all the blow-off performance of dampers of, of how to lose the energy as quickly as possible effectively so we put a lot and lot of effort into the, the blow-off characteristics and yes how i'm not quite sure how to to explain it without revealing everything but but basically from there it's as you say it's just all useful information i managed to well keep and learn and and if, yeah so you're at rml and you're learning all these you're getting massive exposure to all these different parts of the car and you're learning all these new different things and then you you've seen the opportunity to to jump into formula one and that's gone so now and now you're you're in a formula one team so what kind of stuff did they get you doing and was it useful to have had that pre-work pre-exposure at rml and and you're we've already touched on your own racing yes even just to the basic knowledge of cad software and designing and releasing parts just just general design process effectively and where to start from and the, the approach to a design and things like that so it's almost once you've designed for a while in the motorsport environment especially because the motorsport environment is very high tempo you've got to put out designs very quickly it's, it's different from almost any other industry i'd say because of the speed at which you need to turn stuff around just that approach to design helps you i could have gone on to design anything really after that and it would have helped but but i actually when i first moved to force india i was on the fuel system uh, responsible for the fuel system which again is is another area which i'd had zero experience of on the touring car so i went from designing a chassis then to designing an engine at at rml to then designing a fuel system at force india again it was another start to learn again and go from there but touched on this earlier on the just the whole serviceability and just can you physically work on the thing can you use it and and again uh, that all came in and very useful the fuel system on a Formula One car is actually remarkably complicated. From as a general punter, you, you don't get to see any of it, but you can imagine that now a car needs to hold a race distance worth of fuel, and it's in a very hot environment because it's it's effectively between the driver's back and the engine gets very hot, and then it's surrounded by two radiators on either side, and then now we put a battery pack under underneath it as well. So there's a, you've got a big load of fuel there that wants to get hot very quickly, and so part of it is trying to keep it cool. <laughs> Um, and if you can't keep it cool, you've got to try and stop it boiling effectively. There's a lot that goes into uh, the fuel system, which, again, when I, when I told people about working on the fuel system, you're not just drawing a box, but there's, there's a lot that goes into the box, put, put it that way. I mean, in, in general, on the fuel system, is there something that you guys take for granted in Formula One with regards to fuel and looking after the fuel because you, you, you've had to look at all these temperature stuff and as a result, you may have discovered something else that's important? that other people who are racing in a club environment could go, actually, yeah, I could implement something like that. For example, I, I believe that when we had refueling in Formula 1, they used to chill the fuel a little bit as well and, and make it uh, colder because that would give them um, more performance. Is there something that, that people could learn from how you 
the, the complexities of that fuel system and the, but not the impl- implementation but the problem that you're actually trying to solve one thing that i say was surprised me was the temperature control with the amount of fuel you've got in there if you can't keep it cool then it will boil and it will evaporate and of course if the fuel evaporates you can't use it so you start off a race with fuel that you're never going to use. Typical so, engineer. That's the only thing you worry. Everyone else is going, it's going to blow up. Exactly. And you're going, no, no, I just can't use it. It's like <laughs> Exactly, yes. Yes, I know. I often think there's, there's various bits on the, on, on the Formula 1 car which you just don't want the driver to know about. And the fact that just behind his back he's got a whole <laughs> battery and a massive load of fuel that um, it was quite, trying to get quite hot. Basically, yes, so that's that's one thing. All the Formula One drivers do listen to the show, by the way, so just be careful yeah. what you say. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. They need to just turn off for the moment. Yeah. Yeah, as I say, so if you start a race and you've got say hundred and ten litres of fuel and and five litres of that is going to, to evaporate effectively, then that's no good because you're starting a race with potentially up to five kilos of extra mass, which you're, which you're just you're just carrying around as ballast. After the race, we always drain and pump the car out to monitor how much fuel we are definitely using and how much comes out. And and surprisingly, if you try and pump the car initially straight after a race, you won't get a huge amount out. But if you let the car cool down all of a sudden, you'll start pumping more fuel out. The I would say certainly for longer races, more endurance type races. If temperature of fuel is certainly of interest because it's just wasted performance, basically. It's this kind of you want every drop of it's not light, is it, fuel? And you want every drop of that to go to the engine and give you performance to make you go faster. You certainly don't want to be using it as ballast effectively. So, more endurance type races, if you're carrying large volumes of fuel, that um, keeping the thing cool is, is certainly worth doing so you started on the fuel systems and then you've moved on to suspension is that what you said the front suspension now yes i actually i actually picked up the exhaust system as well whilst working in the engine systems department i don't know why i just suggested i think i came up with an idea because of the work i had done on the touring cars and i've done some quite a bit of exhaust work for for the touring cars and and so i ended up picking up the exhaust system as well whilst in in the engine systems department so that was, which was great fun around the time of do you remember another, the, another heat management situation. Oh, right, <laughs> uh, very, very much so because we were in the realms of these Coanda effect exhausts, and oh, yes. um, that was great fun because that was genuine performance, aero performance from the exhaust sort of things. There was a lot of interest going into that, and we were did a lot of testing. But again, yes, you're trying. For the benefit of the people listening, what? Was the Coanda, what is that effect? The Coanda effect? I forget how you said yes, that. Yes, yeah, the Co- Coanda effect. It was, it was simply basically a high velocity gas going near a surface gets attracted to the surface so you can start to steer this flow. And basically, we can then steer this high energy flow into an area to then help aerodynamic performance on at the back of the car. So you can imagine you've if you could see it you've got a jet of this very high energy air and and all of a sudden if you can use that again i won't go into exact details just in case but yes if you use that for aero performance then then great there's been a fair amount in the public domain on how it works but the it was when you were using it i think was the particular thing that was was interesting exactly yes yeah because you we basically well, caught on that the off throttle, you would obviously close throttle. So therefore, all of a sudden, this, this jet would stop. So all of a sudden, 
quickly worked out that hang on a minute if we keep the if we don't close the throttles and we keep flow going through there then we still get this down downforce gain so of course this is when in the time when all of a sudden you heard cars going into corners sounding like a bag of nails and all of the strange noises coming from them because all of a sudden teams were flowing fuel through the engine and basically setting fire to it in exhaust to to generate this 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 jet of energy sort of things it was a shame because i, I think generating aero performance from effectively a waste product which is just going to heat which is going to go into the environment i think generating performance from that is was a great idea initially but then once once we started to burn fuel on purpose just to get extra downfalls then that's when the fia obviously started to say hang on a minute this is we can't let you keep doing this and and of course yes again we start the race with more fuel than we needed because we knew we were going to use it just to give us downforce so that was yeah that was a very interesting time and then as you say very high temperatures and you're trying to control something with the engine we were fortunate enough to go and see the engine on the dyno various times after we were testing and this thing's bucking around all over the place and the exhaust poor exhaust which we were making out of one millimeter thick in canal pipe or something like that it, it the whole thing's glowing cherry red and at the same time you're trying to hold the end of this pipe to point it where you want it to then you've got various carbon fiber suspension components and bodywork and things like this that all would quite happily catch fire if you let them so it was uh, it was an interesting time and and probably gave me a few more gray hairs uh, <laughs> before i started it because you can imagine a failed bracket with the exhaust then swings or moves to somewhere different can be can be very serious indeed an interesting project to say the least I hope you found that absolutely fascinating. I certainly did, and it was a real privilege and honour to speak with Dave. I hope you enjoyed part one. In part two, we start to talk about the driver. What sets the professionals apart from the very competitive club racer? What can you do and what can you learn in terms of how to apply the way in which Formula One go racing to your own racing? What makes great driver feedback and where to focus to get the most speed out of the corner? Can't wait for you to join us into part two. So catch you next time. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com.